Hello, studio teacher friends. Welcome to the Beyond Measure podcast with me, Christina Whitlock, your self-appointed anytime piano teacher friend. This is a show for any studio music teacher who could use a weekly dose of solidarity. I don't claim to know everything, but I have experienced a lot, and I am here to help you remember that you are never alone in this life-changing work we do. You are listening to this show ad-free because of amazing teachers who support my work over on Patreon. Through small pledges of 3 and $6 a month, those teachers keep this show happening. I seriously could not do it without them, so thank you to my Patreon friends who are listening today. If you are not one of them, I would love for you to check out the Patreon community at patreon.com slash beyondmeasurepodcast. There happens to be some really cool extra bonuses at play for community members right now, so it is a great time to join. Speaking of at play, let's get on to today's episode, shall we? It's a good one, and it comes with a free download, so stay tuned for more details on that. Friends, you are listening to episode 152 of the Beyond Measure podcast. Cheers to what it means to play. All right, we are talking today about what it really means to play. I've said it a million times before, and I will probably say it a million times more, but as music teachers, we have to remember that we are teaching students to play their instruments. Play! (laughs) We say this word all the time, yet I find a lot of teachers have spent relatively little time considering what the word play really means. I would venture to guess that most of us claim to understand the important role of play in life, right? Many of us have internalized quotes about play being the work of childhood, right? (laughs) You may attribute those words to the educator Maria Montessori, the psychologist John Piaget, or even the timeless Mr. Fred Rogers. They are all known for having made that same claim, that play is the work of childhood. Furthermore, many of us have seen those infographics shared online about how the brain requires X number of repetitions to build a new synapse, except for when a skill is developed through play, in which case the number of repetitions is notably less. In other words, we learn faster through play than anything else. It makes sense, right? Again, I think we all nod along and agree with this. But my question is this. What does it really mean to play with our students during a lesson? Contrary to popular belief, we can play in a lesson without breaking out a board game or a card game. Play does not have to involve an app, 
It doesn't have to involve a prize box or candy or even stickers. <laughs> now, are those amazing tools? Of course they are. <laughs> do I own a million of all of them? Why, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> do I have anything against games and stickers and candy and prize boxes and apps? Absolutely not. I am nothing but thankful that we have so many brilliant teachers that are creating these kinds of resources for us because they definitely have their places and I definitely use them sometimes. But I wish more teachers understood that those things only represent one tiny sliver of the concept of play. They are an obvious choice, sure, but if you are someone who wants to incorporate more play into your lessons and wants to capitalize on the fact that students learn faster through play, you are missing out on so much if you limit yourself to those external games and reward systems. Now, you know me, I'm always worried about offending someone, so I feel the need to say again <laughs> that I am not against games in any way. I just don't have time to play them very often in my lessons. I do keep a few at the ready for opportune moments, and I am always grateful to have them on hand when they're needed. Now, if your lesson structure is more accommodating for games, I think that's great. There is no judgment whatsoever here. I mentioned the psychologist Jean Piaget a few minutes ago. If you have any kind of education degree, you have likely studied Piaget and his stages of cognitive development, along with his four types of play. Now, I promise I'm not here to give you a collegiate lecture today, but I wanted to use Piaget's four types of play as a starting point for our discussion. But before we do that, I will say this. Piaget connects these four types of play with different stages of cognitive development. And that's its own thing. I am not doing that today. <laughs> I am simply looking at the types of play and thinking about how we could apply them to the lesson experience. This is far from a scientific approach, friends. <laughs> it's just me thinking out loud. In fact, I should probably point out that Piaget's theories themselves draw some pretty harsh criticisms for being less than scientifically sound themselves. So Jean Piaget lays out these four types of play. He calls them functional, constructive, symbolic, and games with rules. The split second rundown is this. Functional play takes place roughly from ages zero to two. This is basically children experimenting with their environments and with their senses, how things feel, how they sound. It's pure exploration with no end goals or ulterior motives. It's just figuring out how the world works, but with delight. That moves on to the constructive play stage. Now, constructive play is where children begin putting those explorations to work a little bit. The, they start building things, they piece elements together to form larger structures. 
Piaget suggests that this stage kicks in from about age three until seven. The symbolic or fantasy play stage begins not long after the constructive play stage, generally starting around age three and lasting until age 12 or so. This is where more imagination steps in and children begin role-playing and storytelling through their play. And lastly comes games with rules, which is pretty self-explanatory, right? <laughs> Piaget theorized that kids ages seven and up, this includes adults, engage more with this kind of play, meaning quite literally, they now understand how to play within certain parameters like games with rules. Now, I don't know if you have ever tried to play hide and seek with a toddler, for instance, but they are not very good at it. They're usually the ones shouting, here I am, come find me, or wandering from place to place, like in plain sight, instead of hiding quietly. By Piaget's theory, this makes sense because they're just not ready to play a game with rules. I remember watching a very discombobulated attempt at Duck Duck Goose in one of my daughter's early preschool classes, <laughs> to which the teacher looked at the parents and said, we're still trying to get the hang of games. <laughs> Again, I don't want the ages I mentioned to become any point of fixation here, because those things are just too fluid. They are dependent on way too many factors to be simplified down into any chronological number. And again, Piaget's theories have been criticized frequently for the limitations they place on children. But my whole point in bringing up this theory is to help illustrate my point that there are many different ways to play. Play involves exploration without a particular end goal. It also can involve building things step by step. It involves imagination. And yes, sometimes play involves structure and rules. And I'm willing to bet that each of us listening to this today tends to lean on one or more of those aspects of play more than others. So I'm here to suggest that we all build an arsenal of activities for each iteration of play. <laughs> now, I know you want me to do it for you. You want me to sit here and give you three activities in each category so you can just put the magic to work and move on with your life, right? <laughs> well, I don't think that's the best answer. I'm sorry, my friend. <laughs> Like I discussed in my episode on prioritizing lasting value, if you just load yourself up with idea after idea, you are missing the point. You need to think about what your student needs. You need to consider what activities complement your teaching style. I wish I could hand it all over to you, but I don't think that actually works. It's like handing you an umbrella in the middle of a hurricane. <laughs> it might seem helpful for a second, but that is going to be short-lived. And then you're going to go on to the next source of help and the next one and on and on it's going to go. Now, 
hear me. I am going to help you get started. <laughs> I do have ideas to share with you, but I want to point out that I don't possess some mystical connection to these ideas. <laughs> the only difference between you and I at this point is the fact that I have given thought to this stuff. So again, I do have a free download that's going to help you with bringing more play to your lessons. So you can exhale a sigh of relief, <laughs> but more than anything, I want you to think about these ideas for yourself. Now, if you are interested in doing that in a formal way with some actual accountability, you are in luck because my Studio Foundations course is starting up a new six-week session next week, and I am so excited to walk with some new participants through my 14 foundational principles for a satisfying and effective teaching experience. If you are not familiar with my Studio Foundations course, this is a collection of the guiding principles that I operate under. They are the first ideas I introduce to pedagogy students, and they establish a framework for moving forward in a way that keeps everyone involved in the lesson experience content. That's you, that's your students, and it's their families, the whole studio triangle. <laughs> The course includes a personal reflections workbook where I will guide you to dig deeper into your own experiences and to help cultivate your own optimized approach to teaching. Now, again, the course covers 14 principles and principle number six of the course is precisely what we're talking about today. The fact that play is the work of the music student. We approach it a little bit differently than I did here today, but the idea is the same. For more information on the Studio Foundations course, you can check out christinawhitlock.com foundations, and you can always let me know if you have any further questions. So, okay, that's the course, but I did promise to help you with this play thing, and here we go. <laughs> I have designed a new download with 16 ways to bring more play into your piano lessons. Yes, this download is geared towards piano teachers, but if you teach other instruments, there are definitely some ideas here to get you started as well. You can find this download along with my other free stuff at christinawhitlock.com free. Now, as we begin to wrap up episode 152 here, I wanted to offer five important takeaways from our chat today. Are you ready? <laughs> okay, number one, play does not have to involve a formal game. Number two, play is more about mindset and less about collecting activities. <clears throat> Number three, play does not always involve a specific result. It is a goal unto itself. Number four, be cautious of turning lessons into a checklist of do's and don'ts. And lastly, number five, the key words to remember are curiosity, exploration, and expression. 
If you're including those three things in your lessons, friends, you are doing great. So now, with all that said and done, let's close today with a toast. Studio teacher friends from all over the world, today I give you a virtual high five for all the things that you think about on your quest to be a better teacher. You probably feel like no one understands how much thought goes into your teaching, but I do. And I know how much you want to up your teaching game. However you do that, whether it's through further education or more reading or more podcast listening or YouTube or whatever it is, I hope you will keep asking yourself the question of what is going to provide lasting value. It's not about collecting activities, friends. It's about building philosophies and approaches that fit your unique contribution to this profession. I am so thankful that you are here doing the work that you are doing. So cheers to continued thinking and continued learning. Hear, hear. Thank you for hanging out with me today for episode 152. I hope today's episode inspired you to think about how you implement play in your lesson time. Before we go, we have a teacher friend of the week to celebrate. (laughs) This week's teacher friend of the week is Robin Hunter. Robin is a piano teacher in Texas, and she also happens to be a Studio Foundations course alumni. I was on a call with Robin the other day, and she was describing a specific rhythm drill that I demonstrate in the Foundations course, and she told me how much she loved it, and then she said, doing that makes me feel like a real teacher. Now, I already loved Robin, but when she made that comment of, I feel like a real teacher, I knew exactly what she meant. Because friends, there is such a difference between walking a student through piece after piece, being like a house of corrections, and a difference between really teaching. It's the difference between being proactive and reactive, right? I love that I've been able to help Robin find that feeling because it's evident that she is already a fantastic educator and now she feels more the part. So cheers Robin for being my teacher friend of the week and cheers to all of us who find that one thing that makes us feel more like a teacher. Until next week friends onward and upward toward finding more play in your teacher life. Take good care of each other, okay? 